0: When you go to Jerusalem, one of the things that you're hoping for, because you're going to like the promised land, right? And it's like, <clears throat> you're hoping for like this God moment. Actually, you're hoping every day you'll see God, like he'll show up in some way. And I've been twice, I'm about to go a third time, and now I've, I've come to the realization that God moments, even in the promised land, are infrequent. They're not as common as you might think. In fact, you kind of have to work for it you kind of have to strive for it and, and wait for it and um the last time I was there I want to want to show you a picture of do we have it well, it's pretty dark but that's a that just looks like a corner in a dungeon to you and that's exactly what it is that's where i had my my last god moment uh in israel oh that's nice and uh John 18 talks about Jesus uh, in the middle. Of, he's kind of being tossed back and forth before he goes to the cross and these this corrupt trial proceedings. And in the middle of all that, he has taken to Caiaphas' house. This is the lowest point in Caiaphas' house. It's the dungeon. There's cells everywhere when you go. It's a, it's a maze of cells. And you can take these very unsafe stairs. No railing. Down to the bottom here, and you can get to this lowest, lowest point. And it is believed that Jesus was stored there hours before his crucifixion. And I, you know, Sue was there, he was there, Angie was there. I mean, many of us were there. Um, Rosemary and Simpson were there. I mean, some of you are in the room here. And I think all of us would say that was the moment where if you could, we all kind of got quiet. It was like you could. You could cut the holiness with a knife. I mean, the presence of God was like—it was amazing. This, this, like you just knew, like yeah, He was here. I get chills just thinking about it right now. And those—you don't have to go to Israel to have that. You know, you, yes, right, amen, right. That's just where I've had it. And but you can—you can have those moments all the time, or not all the time. But you can have those moments in other places. But those moments were not meant to be cul-de-sacs. They're not meant to be an end to themselves. It's not just a holy moment. God, God doesn't grace us with a holy moment for the sake of the moment. God is not. Um, you, know, you ever taken your kids to Disney? You ever wasted thousands of dollars at Disney, right? I have, a couple times, right? It's a lot of fun. We built some great memories Are they better for it? (laughs) No. Can they read? No. Can they do math? No. How about their theology? Is it increased? No, no. How many no's you want on that one, right? No. We just blew it and had a lot of fun as a family, and it was nice. But at the end of the day, it's kind of a cul-de-sac. It's a memory. It's nice, but it's just a cul-de-sac. God is not Walt Disney. You can write that down. I heard that in church today. God is not... He is not about cul-de-sac experiences. When he blesses you with his presence, with his holiness, it is meant to propel you to something. It is meant to draw you to something maybe even greater than yourself. And today in our series on mountains, we, we see that. And I hope, man, I hope I... One, I don't butcher this experience that is so common for us as we read the Bible. We are all familiar with this experience that we're going to read about today. I hope, it's, I hope it becomes more mysterious even as you learn more about it. But at the same time, I hope by the end that you realize that, man, when you experience the holiness of God, it's not just for you to walk away from it. You're like, oh, that was nice. What a nice experience that was. It's for you to be propelled into something far greater. So, if you're following along, if you want to follow along, we're in the book of Exodus today. We were in Genesis last week. We looked at Abraham and the sacrifice, or the almost sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, If you want to catch that, that sermon didn't get recorded. The recording was all messed up, but it got videoed. And so it's on video on the website, and it's also on my YouTube channel. If you want to go see me ski with my kids and watch sermons, subscribe. and then, uh, and then, so, and today, though, we just, we're just looking at these mountaintop experiences throughout Scripture, and so we jump right into Exodus. We'll be in Exodus again next week as well, or next Sunday as well. Um, and we see, uh, we see in Exodus chapter 3, a very, very common experience of the burning bush. It starts here in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he had led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the Mountain of God. Ooh, that's got a good name to it. The Mountain of God. Well, let me first introduce you to Moses. Moses, well, let me just start. Exodus is really like a biography of Moses. It really is when you read it. It has some other things in it, but if you follow it along, it's mostly Moses' biography. Genesis, the book of Genesis, ends with Jacob and his sons and their family all moving to a subdivision outside of Egypt called Pithom. And they are uh, a family that's outside, um, outside of this, the Egyptians because they're not supposed to intermarry and all that stuff. And they just they grow, 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 grow. By the time we get to the book of Exodus, they are, they are huge. Uh, Uh, The book of Genesis says that they're going to be there for 400 years. So we say that they've been there for 400 years. They are massive. There's about a million of them. They have grown and grown and grown and grown. The Egyptians have too. But time has passed. And all of a sudden, we find out in Exodus 1 that the king of Egypt doesn't realize who these people are, why they're even there, how they even got there, and so he, gets, he begins to get intimidated by these subdivision dwellers, and he puts them to hard labor and turns them into slaves. And many uh, archaeologists believe that they built the temple, the, the pyramids that are so famous today in Egypt were built by, these, uh, by the Israeli slaves. If you study it, you can see it. I don't have time to go into it today. Uh, so the, they've grown, they've done all this stuff, and so, they are, um, so he's, then they start to, they're still strong and they're still slaves, but they're being they are poorly, poorly, poorly mistreated, and they're still multiplying. And so the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, says, well, we've got to stop the multiplying, and so how do you do that? You issue abortions. That's what it is. It's pretty much exactly what New York just voted for. The baby comes out, you don't like what it is, you kill it before the womb, before the umbilical cord is cut. And his specification is, baby comes out, it's a male, you kill it. That's the specification. No males, only women. Thanks, Pharaoh. Well, there's a great story there. Midwives don't do it. They, fall, they fear God. They, they tell a lie. It's, Little gray area. Okay, we'll talk about that another day. So, uh, and so they're, just, but they're, so they're fighting to save these boys. One boy is saved. His name is Moses. His name's not Moses, um, but he is, he is saved, and, and they're trying to keep it quiet, they're trying to keep this little boy quiet, this family is. And one day they put him in the Nile River. Don't really know why. Trying to keep him safe. I don't know why you put a child in a river, but okay. <sighs> so they put him in a basket in a river. The basket's actually called an ark in the Hebrew. Put him in an ark in a river, and he floats off to the bathing spot of the the Pharaoh's daughter. And then we have another thing. So we have abortion, and in the same chapter, we have adoption, the very first adoption in Scripture. And it's this little boy who's drawn up from the water, water, and that's what Moses means in Egyptian, drawn up from the water. He's drawn up from the water, and he's adopted into the royal family of the Egyptians. I love adoption. And so he, uh, he is, now he's, he's part of this royal family, and he receives the best education, the best everything. Growing up in the royal house, he would have had the best schooling. <clears throat> he, would have, uh, he would have been ed- educated in etiquette. He would know what, what that fork on the outside of the other fork is for, why the spoon is at the top, why the knife goes facing in to the right, right? I was raised this way, I know. You know so you have, he knows what these things are for. He knows that the water cup goes on the right. I mean, he, he knows it's, he'll pull a chair out for a lady. He's raised in etiquette. Uh, some historians say that he was a great war general, and he went on to, to do great things for the Egyptian army as a, as a great war general. He would have been trained in military activity, right? So he's getting all this training, all this etiquette, all this access to these amazing things. And, he, and from all the things that we can tell, he was a good son. He is 40 years old. 40. We watch Prince of Egypt, you know, animated, and he's like 25. No, 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 he's old, Oh, his back hurts, his joints hurt. He's so old, he's half blind, you know. He's 40, right? Cholesterol is spiking. Yeah. He's 40 years old. And uh, he is walking amongst the pyramids, and he sees a Hebrew getting just whooped. You know the story. And something he can't explain rises up and Rises up inside of him and he beats that Egyptian and kills him. Well, the Israelis see this and they're frightened by what appears to be a madman, literally mad. And then the Egyptians now are looking for a murderer. So, this 40 year old adopted son of the Pharaoh, raised with every opportunity before him, heads for the hills. He runs, he runs off to the the wilderness. And he, uh, it's not very much longer. This is Exodus 1 and 2, by the way. It's two chapters. Very quickly, he meets, uh, he finds himself at a well, at a watering well. He sees some women getting messed with by some bandits. Again, this anger rises up inside of him. He defends the women's honor, and one woman sticks around. Her name is Zipporah and they fall in love. She happens to be a preacher's daughter. He's not really a pre- preacher. He's a pagan, but that's another story. And so he's, he's, she's a pagan preacher's daughter, and, uh, and so he's a part of the spiritual family, and he takes over Jethro, his father-in-law, Jethro's flock, and he becomes a shepherd. And he's doing that for 40 years. we find out later on in the book of Exodus. He is 80 years old at the time of this event. He's 80 You think you're done at 40? You're not done at 40. You're just getting started, right? So he's 80 years old, and he has this event with God. So he sees a bush burning. Consequently, have I ever told you about Moses at the airport? One day he was walking um, through the airport, and uh, he uh, he sees George W. Bush. Yeah, it's a true story. And he sees George W. Bush, and, and George W. Bush looks at Secret Service and says, we need to go, that's Moses. I need to talk to him. I need to know, I need to more, know more about what the history and all this stuff. So he runs up to Moses and says, Moses, Moses. And Moses just looks at George W. and just keeps on walking. And so he, the Bush is just taken aback by this. Like, how dare he not speak to him? I mean, does he not realize that this is the president? And so he runs back up to him. He says, Moses, Moses. And, you know, Secret Service is kind of, you know, folding their arms and making quite the scene. And, and, and Moses just looks at him and keeps on walking. Finally, a third time, he catches up with him. The Secret Service surrounds Moses. And he gets up to him. He says, Moses, why won't you speak to me? And Moses says, do you know what happened last time I spoke to a bush? How many times have you heard that joke? They laugh every time. I'm so funny. Okay, so he sees, he's in the wilderness of Oreb, which literally means wasteland desert. And he see, he's, he's with his flock. He's a little far from home. He's outside of the range a little bit. And he sees something on fire, and as a good shepherd would see something on fire, he approaches it because he's supposed to take care of uh, the land around him. And so he goes to what's called the Mountain of God, uh, this Mount Orab. I'm crying. I'm so funny. All right. Um, and so what's... And I just, we're going to go back to this mountain next week. It's the same mountain. In fact, it's referred to again in 1 Kings 19.8, again in Exodus 24, 13-16. It's also known as Mount Sinai. Many scholars believe that this is the same mountain where the Ten Commandments are going to be given. Uh, so it's a very famous mountain, but it's, it's called the Mountain of God. Uh, in fact, when it, it, we won't get to this, but when when Moses goes before Pharaoh, he's going to say, you need to let my people go worship God. Well, it's in their intention that they will come to this mountain, the mountain of God. It is a familiar land piece within their, their, their sphere. For some reason, people believe that God dwelled there, and he does. He is later going to leave that mountain and follow them through what's called the tabernacle, and he'll be with his people with a fire by, uh, by night and a cloud by day, guiding his people constantly in the presence of the tabernacle. But for now, he dwells on this mountain. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, not George W. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, so the reads kind of funny, but he's looking at the bush. When God notices he's looking at it, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. So there's a fire, he sees it, he goes to it. The, the, you see an angel of the Lord, it, this I don't know, some textual stuff. The angel of the Lord is the thing that's burning, it's the presence that, you see, that he sees. Biblically, man, if man sees God, he dies. In fact, he tells him that. You, got, Moses says, I want to see you. He says, if you see me, you will die. He tells him that later in the book of Exodus. Man sees God, he dies. So it's an angel that's consuming, but it's God who's speaking we can hear from God even though we may not necessarily see him and so he's, he's speaking and appear, the angel appears and he says this in verse 5 then he said do not come near far enough take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground in ancient egypt it is unacceptable to wear sandals in the presence of a king you just didn't wear sandals you didn't wear shoes in the presence of the king Uh, Moses is told to show the same kind of respect for the sacred space. He is going to show this respect to the king of the universe embodied in a bush that is on fire, that is not consumed. God calls it a holy place. And I just want to camp here for just a second. It is a bush on a rocky mountain. It is no more holy than that chair, right? Right? It is no more holy than the aspen tree outside. It's just a plant, right? What makes it holy is the presence of God. And God indwells that plant, that dusty, dirty, mundane, green bush and makes it holy. And it's holy because God is there. In fact, the Hebrew actually says... You are um, you are standing on holy land, not just ground, land. All of this is made holy by the presence of God, and God's, God's holiness invades this space again. I just when I was studying, I was like, man, we need to talk. We need to. That's the this is the, this is kind of the point, is the holiness of God in this mountaintop experience. And I, I referred to a, a, one of my favorite scholars, which is A.W. Tozier. you ever heard of him? He's from Chicago. He preached in the, a long time ago in the early 1900s. That's not funny? Like 1950, Whew, Yeah, so old. But he, his sermon, he didn't write, he preached. And somebody took his sermons and had manuscript them, and you could buy his books, they're real thin, they're great. But he said this about the holiness of God in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy Neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet water of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely better. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power, he may admire God's wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. And that is so true. God is holy. That is who he is. He doesn't have to strive for it. He doesn't have to work for it. He doesn't wake up in the morning, think I, one of these days, I'm going to be holy. He's not aiming for it. He just is holy. And wherever then God dwells is holy. Now, here's the good news then. You and I are just like that bush. We are dirty. We are sinful. We are dusty from the winds of culture. We are we are stuck sometimes in the in the roots of a of a mountain and the rock, and we are unkept. Um, we are we are not pure. There's nothing good and holy about us, but God, but God, I love those, dwells in you and makes you holy. Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ that by grace, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and the work that's been done on the cross, we are just like that bush, and we are consumed by the fire of God, and our hearts wake up, but it is not burned up. It is a lit aflame, and something amazing is happening inside of us because we have now received the holiness of God through the work of Jesus. And I just, We may not be able to fully understand it or comprehend it, but somehow you've got to know that we are holy because of Christ, not because of anything else. And you don't have to aim for it. You don't have to shoot for it. You don't have to wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to be more holy today. You are already fully holy. All you have to do is realize it. The Bible calls us a holy temple. Do you know the Bible calls you a saint? You have people praying to saints. You don't have to pray to saints. You're a saint. You're a saint in Christ. You pray to Jesus when we uh we used to live in houston we lived 45 minutes from the beach we went to the beach once a month every month because you can and we were uh every time we go to the beach we'd load up the kids and all the gear and all the paddle you know, all the not paddle boards all the surf you know this body surfing stuff and towels and get in the car and we start driving we're listening to music and we drive through downtown houston you know, we get stuck in a little bit of traffic because there's always traffic in Houston, and uh, then we get on the other side. You get on, you get on 45, which just goes straight to Galveston. Some people brag on Galveston; it's fine. You can rag on Galveston, but it was our beach; we liked it. And we would get to, we'd cross over the big bridge that goes to the island of Galveston, and then we would we would take the first right we could that took us directly to the seawall. You okay? You okay with me telling the story? All right. I know. I know and uh and so we take she just misses the beach and so we take the first right we would shoot even though that wasn't where we were going to camp out for the day we were just going to go straight to the seawall and we'd hit the we'd hit that seawall and out there would be the gulf of mexico as far as we could see and we would roll down every single window crank back the sunroof if it was the land rover both sunroofs everything i got rid of that car friends don't let friends drive land rovers and so and so we, uh, we just had this, this we just did everything we could. And all that air, all that Houston air, all that ocean air just blowing into the car. And it's like, and you could hear the waves were like overpowering the radio. And it's like, this is so good. And then we'd drive to our little spot and we'd set up camp and just play and get burned by the sun. And, but we would look at that. I would just stand there and look out at that ocean. And I could not, just as Tozier said, I couldn't comprehend it all. I didn't understand its depths. I couldn't even see the end of it. But I knew I was there. I knew I was at the ocean, right by its presence. The same is true with holiness. There's an effect that holiness has on our lives, that you can know whether or not you've been in the presence of holiness. And that's by if it's changed you. Because that's what's happening to Moses. Look at what he does in verse 6. And God said... Broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God, listen, the holiness of God is seen in His justice. He is just. And he is not standing for what's happening to Israel anymore. And he's going to commission Moses to do something about it. Moses, this is not a cul-de-sac experience. You don't just get to go home and say, hey, I saw a bush on fire. It didn't get consumed. It's a great story. I talked to God. I'm gonna Instagram it, you know. No, it's not that. I'm, you're, you're getting this experience because I have something for you. And the same is true for us. We receive these holiness experiences sometimes because God has something for us, not just a moment for us to experience, right? Now, how do these happen? Um, you know one of my favorite, one of my favorite like poets or activists is you ever heard of John Muir? I got a picture of this crazy-looking hippie guy. Is he up there? Got a meme. There he is. He, I just, he's the best. He says, Everybody needs beauty as well as bread, places to play play in and pray in, where nature may heal and give strength to body and soul. Did you know he had the entire New Testament memorized? He had most of the Old Testament memorized. He grew up as a, under a Presbyterian preacher, and he loved Jesus. And he found Jesus in solitude. He found these holy moments, uh, uh, quite frankly, in our national parks, right? And he's the reason for the fight for those things. And he's a big reason for it. And he really pushed solitude. And I thought that was really good for us today because we tend to think that God shows up in solitude. And sometimes he does. But sometimes he shows up in a dungeon with a bunch of friends. Sometimes he shows up in an old church with popcorn ceilings, right? Sometimes he shows up in an amphitheater. He can show up anywhere. But there is an aloneness. There is a stillness of the soul that has to take place. right? We have to get to that point where we're, where we're kind of calm, where we're like, okay, God, I'm, I'm here to hear from you. I'm here to listen to you. Moses was alone. Him and the sheep, right? There's an aloneness that has to happen. But it doesn't have to happen on a warner. It can happen right here. It can happen out there. It can happen anywhere. Right? It can happen in your office. It can have. I've had lots of great moments in, with God in my kitchen, and a chair in my living room, by a fireplace. God can show up anywhere, right? So when we have these moments, though, we have to be careful that we don't, we don't, we don't again just seek the solitude for the sake of the solitude to be with God. That's good, but that needs to that needs to come around something. In fact, here's another. What are these called? Memes? Well, the, I don't know. When they write words on a picture? Is that what it's called? A meme? Okay, here's another one. <clears throat> Thank you. If I, have, if I have a faith that can move mountains but not love, I am nothing. It's from 1 Corinthians. See, if it doesn't inspire you, if that solitude grows your faith but that faith doesn't do anything... Paul says you're a noisy gong, you're a clanging cymbal, you're Jake just beating on that thing for nothing at all, right? Jake doesn't do that. He's talented, he's gifted, and we love him. We're thankful for him, right? But you're just, you're nothing. But these experiences happen, so you can grow in your love and you can grow in your action. God reveals his holiness through justice, through action, and he plans to do it with you as he does it with Moses. Check this out. I have surely, this is right from the verses I read. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land that is good and broad to a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, uh, he, tell, he says, Moses, I want to take my people from that place to. Canaan, and it's a land flowing of milk and honey. Uh, milk, I love this. This is a very common phrase. It means a lot more than what it, me- it says. Uh, for example, if you said, hey, I'm going to take you to a land of milk, um, <laughs> I don't know, you might think, wow, cartons and cartons of milk, right? Did you know milk comes from animals, right? So the Israelis thinking sheep, goats, they're not thinking cows, Right? They're thinking sheep and goats, they make milk. And if they have milk, that means there's other things like fur and skins and hides for tents and clothes and sandals, all these different things. So when God says, I'm taking you to a land of milk, he says, I'm taking you to a place where resources are abundant. And I'm taking you to a land of honey. This place of honey is, you're like, great, little bears, right? All the way through the grocery store. No, 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 no. In fact, most honey in Israel is not from bee. It's from, uh, it's from dates and flowers and things like that. It's really, really good. But there's some bee honey. That's really good too. But that's not the point. They, they hear honey. They think, oh, if they make honey, you need flowers, you need fruits, you need vegetables, you need sweet things. Not only are we going to have animals and resources, but we're also going to have delicacies, sweetness, this is going to be so good. God says, I'm going to take you from these bitter days to a sweet, sweet place with me. And So Moses is like, great, I'm so glad you're going to do that. <laughs> no, no, Moses, you're going to do it. Verse 10, come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. You have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve who you shall serve God on this mountain. So he says, Moses, I'm going with you. You're the one that's gonna set these people free. I've heard their cries and I've commissioned you. And Moses is just like all of us, isn't he? I, 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 I don't think so. I, I think you missed my roommate. I think you missed uh, somebody. My maybe my sister's down the hall. You know she's really spiritual. You know, we he says no no it's you. Now you are probably not called to set the f- slaves free in Egypt. Just guessing. But would you begin to think next time you have a moment with God, what is it He's calling you to? First off, we should notice that Moses. This is not new for Moses. He has been burning for this. He prays about this. He aches for this. He's killed a man for this. This is something he is passionate about, right? This is not new. This is already stirring in his heart. That's an indicator to us that what's already stirring in our hearts, God has probably put there if it's a godly task, right? This isn't new. He's already given you a heart for this. You just didn't know what to do with it, so you did something stupid like killing somebody, right? It's not new. And then I like to think concentrically. Like when I'm with God or praying or having a time in the Lord, I, I, I try to think concentrically about where it is he might be trying to take me or, or move me. And so the, first, the, the outer circle would be global. Has God given you a burden for missions? Has he called you to the poor of the world? Um, has he called you to the nations? Yeah, is there a certain country you're burdened for? Is, he's already stirred your heart for it, and you just don't know what to do with it. It's going to be one of those holy moments. He's going to say, this is what you do. Sell your house, sell your car, sell your stuff, cash out your 401k, and move to South Africa. And everybody's going to say, you're crazy. And be like, oh yeah, that was Genesis 22, right? Yeah, that's, that's right, I'm crazy Forgot, I'm just going to do it. I have a burden, and he's told me to do this. I'm going to go for it. It's a godly task, right? And then you can think locally, the next circle in. Are you called to say something to your friends? Are you called to defend the weak? You're in the schools. Are you called to stop a bully? Are you called to speak the truth in a situation? Are you called to serve, maybe in a, a nonprofit, skate church, Young Life, Sela, Anchor Way, church? Are you called to do something locally, and God's already given you a heart for it. You said, know what to do with it? And you have that moment with Him. Don't let it lead to a cul de sac. It's going to propel you to something. And then finally, that internal circle. Has God, has God called you to repent from sin? Has God called you to be a better spouse? Has God called you to be a more attentive parent? Has God called you to read your Bible more, to pray more? That inner circle. And those are probably the ones we really want to hear from Him on, right? Like, God, what do you want me to do? All those things happen, I believe and those holy moments with God that can, be, that can take place anywhere. But they have to, we have to be willing to hear, and we have to be, have our hearts a little still for God to break through and show up. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? <laughs> God said to Moses, I am who I am. And Moses said, uh, and God said, "'Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you.'" God also said, and I am is another way of saying, um, "'I created,' or I, I have become, or everything comes through me. It's, I, everything is through him.'" Uh, in the New Testament, we would say uh, the Logos, right? "'God also said to Moses, "'Say this to the people of Israel. "'The Lord, the God of your fathers, "'the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, "'the God of Jacob has sent me to you. "'This is my name forever.'" Thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The word Lord there is Yahweh, but he introduces himself as I am. We find out later, we're not going to get there, Moses feels unqualified and rightfully so. In fact, the Hebrew says, literally, he has a fat tongue. He talks like this. He probably had a very thick lip." And he thought to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Right? He's intimidated by this. And He's old. He's 80, right? He has a fat tongue. Yeah, he probably has a lisp of some type, right? And he is a, he. He's a murderer. He's been out. He's been out of Egypt for 40 years. He probably, you know, he's got. He looks like a duck dynasty guy. <laughs> he's got a beard down to here and hair everywhere, and you know, been shooting squirrel and blowing up beaver, and you know, just he doesn't look like a clean-cut Egyptian anymore. He is not the right guy. And I love what God says. You don't feel like, you're saying you are not. And that's okay, because God is I am. And you may be saying in your holy moment with God, God says, I want you to be a different kind of father. I want you to be a different kind of mother. I want you to parent your kids different. I want you to try a different country. I want you to do something crazy. I want you to give like you've never given before. I want you to do something. And you're going to say, God, I cannot do that. And God's going to say, I know, I am. I can do it through you. And you're going to go with me. You know what that is called? Grace. All grace. And so when we get on the other side of whatever it is that God's pointed us to do, we don't look back and say, "Look, out, I'm so awesome. Right? You can say, I couldn't, I couldn't have done it without God. But you don't get to say it unless you try. Unless you go for it. You ever heard of Taylor Storch? I have a picture of her. She's a little 13-year-old. Christian girl from Dallas, Texas. There she is. Bless her heart. In 2010, she was on a ski trip in Beaver Creek and uh, went off into the trees and died. I didn't, I didn't know her story, but I didn't know she was skiing, which is not fun. And... Um, she, uh, they, they took her, they got her to Grand Junction. They took her to Vail and then they got her to Grand Junction for the hospital. And her body was just, she had all kinds of broken bones, but something hit wrong and there's all kinds of details, and she ended up dying from this, which it's very unusual to actually, to die from this, normally just broken bones. Well, her uh, parents were forced to make a decision very quickly, and they said, do you want your daughter to be an organ donor? And they said, she was a good, she's a good girl. She was generous, so yeah. And so that day, you know, they like saved people's lives. Like people got kidneys and liver, and liver and all kinds of stuff. But her greatest gift that she gave, that Taylor gave, was her heart. And there's a woman in Arizona named Patricia Winters. And she was 39 years old, and she has some kind of heart thing that I can barely say. I wish it was in Hebrew. I could say it. But it's cardiomyopathy, and she had it for five years. It's gotten so bad that she sleeps 18 hours a day. She has two small boys that she couldn't take care of. She's a single mom, and she needed a heart. And so um, within moments, she gets Taylor's heart. And uh, they're able to, because of a mutual friend, which is just crazy, they're able to figure out that through the news and all this stuff, where Patricia got the heart from because Taylor's death was so public. And so they put it all together, and Taylor's mom, Tara, who's pictured behind me, the, girl on, the woman on this side, um, is with Patricia, who's on that side. They connected. They contacted each other. And they talked, and they were thankful. And then Tara, Taylor's mom, asked Patricia a very strange thing. She said, Can I listen to your heart? I didn't cry preparing this. Come on. (laughs) So she she put there's pictures of it, but I was like, I didn't want to show you. This is so weird looking. But she puts her head up against her chest and listens to her heart. And at that moment, both of them have qualified this, that the heart like beat harder. Like, it was a crazy, like, these muscles had been trained with this mom's ear. It was just amazing. So, the heart, like, (laughs) all these people running through my head. (laughs) So, the heart, like, beat harder. And so, she pulled away just this beautiful thing. And so, now they started an organization called Taylor's Heart. And it's all about teaching people about being organ donors and just what it does. But what I thought was really cool about that story was. When God puts his ear up against your chest, he hears his heart. His holy heart. That's what he hears. And it thumps a little harder. You you are carrying the heart of God inside of you. You are meant for a good, holy, godly task. And I pray as you experience him, whenever that may be, It leads to greater things because you have his heart.